Do you remember when you were 12? Long time ago, some of you guys. Long time ago for me, that's for sure. What do you remember when you were 12? What was life like when you were 12? Can you remember the school you were at? I was an Ofer Bobcat. Um, what stands out to you about 12? I was sixth grade for me, maybe seventh grade for you. I was a little behind. Is that right? Pony League Baseball. There you go. Get out of Little League into Pony League. Very nice. Ryan, 12 years old. Spent a lot of time in detention. <laughs> Got to know that chalkboard. I will not. Good. A lot of time in detention. Yeah. 12 years old. What was that like for you? What do you remember? What stands out about 12 years old? That was the first time I went to church was when I was 12 years old. I was like, My favorite teacher. Your favorite teacher, 12 years old. What was, what was her name or his name? Mr. Smith. Good. All right. Thanks. Anything else? 12 years old? What stands out to you about 12 years old? Yeah, struggle with relationships. Yeah, that's kind of the beginning of a rough season for a lot of people, right? Entering into junior high and adolescence and all that. Yeah. Girls get mean. So mean. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Not as mean as girls, Angela. Not as mean as girls. Good. All right, so today um, is our last teaching in a series on the earliest stories of Jesus' life. We've called it Roots and Revelation, and um, we've taken a few weeks to look at the very few stories that are provided in Scripture from the childhood of Jesus because these stories create the roots or the source, in a sense, of the revelation that is given through the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Um, during, and typically when we, what we, when we say the life and teachings of Jesus Christ, what we're talking about is a very small part of his life. We're talking about three years during his public ministry um, when he, between his baptism at 30 and his death and resurrection at age about 33. So uh, there's just a, when we think about the life and teachings of Jesus, we think about just this little tiny sliver actually, and there's all this other time, there's 30 more years of life, 30 years about which we know very little, and only a few stories are recorded. And all of the stories that are recorded about the life of Jesus before his baptism, all of them, except one, is from his birth and his infancy. Right? So you get one story post-infancy, pre-30 years old, about Jesus. There's only one story recorded, and it is rich with significance. I want to look at it today together. I think we could, this week, this, one of the things that I thought of this week was, man, I wish I would have done a whole, maybe we will someday, we'll do a whole series on this story because it's just packed. There's so much revealed in this story. So what I want to do is read it together um, bit by bit, and I'll just offer some comments and point out some things that, uh, that I've noticed over the week, and then I want to teach you three truths that are revealed through this story. All right, so we'll study it together, and then uh, I'll highlight three truths that are revealed through this story. Let's, let's begin with verse 41. This is Luke chapter 2. We typically read the first part of the chapter at Christmas about his birth. By the end of the chapter, we're already at um, his 12th year. This is how Luke begins, verse 41. It's on page 716 if you're using the Bible that we provide. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. Every year... Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. 
So here Luke establishes the context of the story. He's establishing a pattern of the family of Jesus. Every year they go to the Passover. This is not just one time we went to Disneyland when I was not. This is every year they participate in this big, this big Jewish festival, this big tradition. And it's, it's like strict obedience to the law of Moses. The Passover refers to the exodus of the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. It happened a thousand years or more before, 1,400 years before this. And yet Moses tells the, the Jews, celebrate this, this as a Passover, celebrate this, uh, this freeing from slavery every year, forever. He says, this will not change. You celebrate this every, and, and Mary and Joseph are doing that. They're doing that. Even though it's been more than a thousand years, they're still celebrating the Passover every year. They're faithfully obeying the law of the Lord, obeying the Passover or uh, celebrating the Passover. That's verse 41. Verse 42, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival. Jerusalem is always up. doesn't matter what direction you're coming from. They went up to the festival and according to the custom. So he's 12 years old. And it's significant that this story happens when Jesus is 12 years old, because the 12th year of a child's life in this culture is the final year of preparation before a boy enters into full participation of Jewish life, of religious life in the synagogue. So this would have been Jesus's rite of passage year. This would have been the year where he transfers, where he makes that move from early childhood to young adulthood. Up until this time, Jesus' parents, especially his father, would have been teaching him the commandments of the law um, up until his 12th year. And then in his 12th year, at the end of his 12th year, the child would go through a ceremony in which he would take on the yoke of the law of Moses and he would become a bar mitzvah. You've heard that phrase, right? He would become a bar mitzvah, a son of the law, a son of the commandment. And this is when he would move from child to adult. But before this rite of passage happens for Jesus formally, Jesus demonstrates in his own way that he would be more than just your typical Jewish boy. He would be more than just your ordinary bar mitzvah, son of the commandment. He's going to have a special relationship with God. In fact, his relationship with God, the Father, is already very unique. Look at verse 43. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. Okay, so the festival, the Passover festival lasts about a week. The whole thing is very communal. You're with friends and family. You're eating with people. You're always with this big crowd. And so Mary and Joseph would have been surrounded by a lot of people during this whole time. It reminds me of over the summer, my family and I spent some time in Wisconsin at a camp. And we spent a couple of weeks there. And it was just such a kind of a, a safe place, um, a well-demarcated place. There's all kinds of supervision and people, there's kids everywhere already. So by the end of the two weeks, Matthias, our eight-year-old, was just kind of running free, just kind of doing whatever he wanted to do. And we didn't worry about it because it was just a, it was a place where he was always just hanging out with quality people and playing with other kids his age. So he just had the like, he was like totally free to just run and do his thing. And then at the end, we flew from Wisconsin, this little teeny like 16-seat airplane, to Minneapolis, and that's a big international airport, 
And Matthew gets out of the runway and just takes off into the airport. And we're like, whoa, 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 you can't do that here, right? You gotta, this is not that place. We're not, we're not still at camp. You gotta like, we gotta stay, you gotta stay close to us here. Uh, the safe distance in this place is close distance. But see, it, it can feel kind of weird that how do they not notice Jesus for a whole day? Well, they've just come from this week-long party where they're all with family and friends, right? Have you ever lost a child? I mean, that is a special kind of terror, is it not? To lose a child, and it's a terror that increases in intensity every moment. Can you imagine the conversation Mary has with Joseph? What, what, where's Je- Jesus isn't with you? No, Jesus isn't with me. He was with you this morning. This morning? You haven't seen him all day? Thought he was with you. And they go back a day's journey. Verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Three things that are significant here. It's significant that Jesus is found on the third day. They are searching for him, and he is found on the third day, foreshadowing to the resurrection story. Dies on a Friday, raised to life three days later. later. It's significant that Jesus is found in the temple courts. One commentator wonders, where else were they looking for Jesus? In the barns? At the playground? At the bakery? I mean, they're looking everywhere else. They got two whole days to look around before they finally come to the temple to look for him. Significant that he's at the temple. Thirdly, it's significant that Jesus is sitting among the Jewish teachers and the experts in the word of God. All kinds of significance there. Verse 47, everyone who heard Jesus was amazed at his understanding and his answers. So something special is happening here. Something very unusual is happening in the interactions between the religious experts. I mean, the best of the best are at the temple in Jerusalem and a 12-year-old boy. They were amazed. Verse 48, when his parents saw them, saw him, They were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you or searching for you in pain. Okay, so I'll back up to 48 or to 47. When the people heard Jesus, they were amazed. That's the way the word is translated into English. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. What's the difference there? I I, I looked into that. Amazed in the Greek, the word that's translated into English, it means to be thrown off. It's like, that doesn't fit. That's unusual. That's remarkable. That's amazing. Haven't seen that before. That's what that word means. Um, So everyone sees this 12-year-old kid conversing with the teachers of the law, and that's not what they expect. That throws them off. That's remarkable. That's amazing. Astonished comes from the Greek word pleso, which means to flatten or to strike. So a street-level translation of that might be that when his parents saw them, they were floored, like they were knocked down, um, right? They were, they were just, they were flattened. Your father and I have been anxiously or painfully searching for you, Mary says. Jesus' response in verse 49 Why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? 
but they did not understand what he was saying to them. That last statement, verse 50, they did not understand what Jesus was saying to them. That's Luke, the writer, the the narrator. That's Luke's way of saying, okay, pay attention here. There's more here. Dig into this. Come back to this. There's more here than meets the eye. Don't miss it. This is the point here. We'll come back to that in a second because it's the point, verse 49. By the way, verse 49 is the first recorded statement of Jesus Christ, right? Why were you searching for me? That's the first thing Jesus says. All right, verse 51. Then he went down to, to Nazareth with them, his parents, and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So Luke's careful to say, and Matthew was too, that we shouldn't understand this as some sort of act of rebellion, teenage rebellion. Luke points out that Jesus returns with his parents and is obedient to them. Mary is holding on to these experiences like treasures in her heart. You get the sense that she doesn't understand what's going on in the moment. She doesn't see it very clearly. But later, as she thinks, after she thinks about this for a while, it's going to be the, the meaning and the significance of these events is going to become clarified. And then later when she meets Luke, who writes this story, she'll be able to reveal and relay the story about what happened when her son was 12 uh, with a deeper sense of understanding about what was going on. And the story ends with verse 52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So just Jesus, the, the point is Jesus keeps on growing. He grows in wisdom. He grows in stature. I don't know what that word means. I had to look it up. It means maturing in age and size, just stature and favor. The word is grace. It's almost the same phrase that Luke uses at the end of the previous story in his gospel after the dedication in the temple. At the end of that story, verse 40, says the child grew and became strong, was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Then he tells the 12-year-old Jesus story, and then verse 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. It's like his sort of book ends. Jesus kept growing. He kept developing. Okay, so that's it. That's it. That's the one story that we have of Jesus for a 28-year period. Isn't that amazing? That is the one thing we know about him. That's the one story recorded in Scripture. Of course, it's not the only story written about Jesus as a child in ancient literature. There are lots of stories written about the the little boy Jesus, the teenage Jesus. Of, Of course there are. It's a fascinating mystery to contemplate, right? But only one is embraced by the church as, as, as um, authentic, as real, as appropriate for holy scripture. The, the rest, I don't know if you've ever read any of them, but other stories about Jesus as a child kind of picture him as sort of this, this, boy, this like boy superhero. Like he's got all this power, but he doesn't have the maturity to know what to do with it. You know, so he's often like acting out in vindictive behavior towards people. You kind of have this like, boyhood Superman kind of idea where he can run faster than anybody, but he's just kind of a freak. Nobody really knows what to do with him. Uh, people are imagining, what would it be like to be a, you know, a teenage Jesus or a six-year-old Jesus? But the church just embraces this single story as the essential root to Jesus's life. This is the one story we get. This is the one that tells you what you need to know from the childhood of Jesus. Okay, well, then what does it tell us? Um, what's revealed through this story. There's a whole lot. I think three big things are revealed. I'll try to outline those here. The first 
The first thing that's revealed is the practical playing out of Jesus' two natures. The practical playing out of Jesus' two natures. The clear claim in the New Testament and in the early writings of the church are that Jesus is human and that Jesus is God, both. Uh, The language that's chosen by the writers of the early Christian creeds is that Jesus is one person with two natures. He's got a divine nature and he's got a human nature. So Jesus is fully God, not almost God, not becoming God, not half God. He is fully God and Jesus is fully man. He's born, he's tempted, he struggles, he suffers, he bleeds, he dies. He's a real man. So don't think about it. It's mind blowing, I understand. But don't think about it as half and half. Think about Jesus as 200%. He is all God and mysteriously, he is all man. He is fully God, fully man. He is God in the flesh. And in this story, we begin to see how that practically plays out. For instance, in this story, Jesus knows who he is. He knows who his father is, his real father, right? The one thing that is amazing to others who see him is that he has knowledge of the scriptures that is way more than the knowledge that he could have learned. It's like he knows what no one could have taught him. It's like he experienced the stories and the teachings personally because he has, because he's God, right? He knows the word. He gave it. He understands what the prophets were talking about. He's the one that spoke to the prophets, right? This is all possible, even though it's super mysterious because of his divine nature, because he's God. And at the same time, he's also a real human, And as a real human being, he's really growing. He's really developing. His his wisdom, think in terms of practical experience of life, experientially, personal experience, that's increasing because he's a real person. So lots more is revealed about Christ's identity as God-man in the rest of the New Testament because it's a fundamental claim of Christianity. Uh, It's not, in other words, you don't get the whole doctrine from this story, but this story begins to reveal it. An example of of the way this plays out later is like a song that Paul quotes to the church in Philippi, the Philippian church. Maybe you've heard this. He says this at one point. It's an early Christian hymn that he quotes. He says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So when that hymn is drawn out in books, it starts up high and it goes all because it's God become man. And then the rest of the hymn reveals how he returns, in a sense, to glory. So it seems that God the Son, in coming to earth as a human, this is important, chooses to set aside, not divorce himself from, but set aside certain characteristics or abilities connected to his divinity, such as his all-knowingness, such as his, his ability to have all power. And he does this in order to live a limited and therefore real human experience. 
He does this in order to show us how to be human who, um, as human, cannot depend solely on our own power, our own knowledge, but must learn to depend on God's knowledge and God's power for us. He is showing us how to do this. But in setting aside certain divine characteristics like his omnipotence, his omniscience, he is not separating himself from divine nature. He does not cease to be God. He is eternally existing God in the past. That's his nature, his only nature. Then he takes on a human nature, comes to live and die as one of us, and then he ascends in his body. He retains the human nature for eternity future. So he is forever the God-man. He forever one person with two natures. And you might be thinking, okay, beyond, you just pushed my theology quotient, beyond. Um, but, and, it's not, but, and it might not be as exciting to you as it is to me. But it is critical that you understand this. It, and I mean it. It's important. It's super critical that you understand this concept at least as a, at a basic level because of this. If you don't get this, listen, if you don't get this, that, God is, that Jesus is God and man, Everything he does and everything he says will be misunderstood by you. Everything. You have to understand that Jesus is God and Jesus is man. If you don't, nothing in the New Testament is going to make, is going to be interpreted correctly by you. Quick, two quick examples. If he's God, but he's not man, he, then nothing he says can really be relevant to us. It can't be. Nothing he says can really help us. And friends, you hear people make this error all the time. Well, yeah, Jesus did it, but Jesus is God. So of course that's, you know, it's irrelevant to me. I can't do that, right? You hear people do that all the time. That's, that's bad theology, right? Um, on the other hand, so if he's God, but not man, not very helpful to me. Okay, that's the first thing. On the other hand, if he's man but not God, he's just a good person. And that's really caught on in our culture. He's just a good person. Right? But he has no authority. He has no authority. He's just another religious figure that we might learn from like Gandhi or Muhammad. He's just another moral giant to admire like Mother Teresa or Nelson Mandela. He's just another good person. Because he's man, but he's not God. It's just critical. The first thing the story reveals, and it is so important theologically and is so important practically, is who Jesus is. He is God and he is man. Got it? <laughs> it's good. I, it's, it's complicated, but it's critical. It's critical from the perspective of understanding a, 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 a biblically Christian um, understanding a reality. All right. Second thing that this story reveals is much simpler. It's that Jesus is a remarkable teacher. We see that in this story. Jesus is, or Luke is showing Jesus as a special kind of teacher. He doesn't just give answers. He asks penetrating questions. It's both Jesus's answers and Jesus's questions that amaze the religious teachers. So when his mother asks him a question, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you, searching for you in pain. Jesus, of course, responds with a question. Even at 12, he's doing this. It sounds like it might have been kind of a snarky thing, but I don't think it was. 
Why were you searching for me, is, is his response. The first recorded words of Jesus Christ are a question. And this pattern of responding to questions with more questions, it continues all through the Gospels. Jesus loves doing this. It is one of the distinct characteristics of Jesus' teaching ministry. Jesus also teaches by demonstrating his actions, not just by saying things. He shows you what to do. It's show and tell with Jesus. He doesn't just tell. He'll go on to speak about, the, about God's love, but what, what is really provocative is the way he shows the truth of God's love through his actions. He does stuff like eating with the wrong kinds of people, touching the, the people who are not clean, welcoming the people who are unwelcomed, who are despised, who are definitely out of bounds or feared. So he teaches by asking questions, by demonstrating, not just by talking. And, and thirdly, Jesus teaches uh, to do more than just communicate information. He teaches to provoke response. That's his goal. He wants to instigate. He wants to challenge the hearer to do something. He's a remarkable teacher. So Jesus' teaching will be a central place of his ministry. He will often be referred to as rabbi, right, which is teacher. And this story clearly reveals that he is seen early on, even at 12, as a powerful teacher. And then the third reality that this story reveals is, in my opinion, the most compelling. When I consider what it means to follow Jesus Christ, it's this last part of the story that, that I think really is challenging to me, and I hope that it will be challenging to you. And it's this, the story reveals Jesus' preeminent commitment to God as Father. We see this in the exchange between Jesus and his mother. And the language here is amazing. It's poetic and clever and powerful. Verse 48, Mary says, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Verse 49, Jesus asks, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? So question from mom. Why have you done this? We, your father and I have been looking for you. And he says, why are you searching? I'm in my father's house. So there's two things happening here. One is a play around the word father that reveals Jesus has a very clear understanding of his true identity. He knows whose he is. Right? Because when Mary says father, who's she referring to? Joseph, right? When Jesus says, Father, who's he referring to? God is not Joseph, right? He knows. This is the kind of simple exchange that, that just communicates so much. Like, I was trying to think of a specific example, but I feel like it shows up in several movies, like the end of the scene where there's this big crisis, and then there's this resolution, and somebody says, all right, let's go home. And the other person says, this is my home. You know, like, you know that scene? It shows up. Like, there's like a, a redefinition of reality in that point. Like, oh, what, really? Like, there's this change, this clarifying moment of like, this is it, right? Without being disrespectful, without being rebellious, Jesus is clarifying who's in charge of his life. He's clarifying whom he will obey in this interaction with his mother. And then the other thing that's happening here is this super loaded phrase, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Okay, literally, Jesus is speaking about his location. He's been in the temple for three days. That's the father's house. Why were they searching anywhere else? Didn't they know he had to be in his father's house? But the phrase, friends, the phrase that's translated in English, in the father's house, it means so much than just a literal location. That's why it can also be translated. In some of your Bibles, it's translated, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? 
Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house about my father's business? It's a difficult phrase to translate into English. Literally, what is said there is, didn't you know I had to be in the things that are my father's? Didn't you know I had to be in the things that are my father's? It doesn't make sense. So we go in my father's house about my father's business. Here's the point. This is revealing Jesus's highest commitment. This is revealing his top priority, his number one purpose. Jesus asks Mary this question as if to emphasize the fact that it is not, it shouldn't be a question. There is no question. At 12 years old, there's total resolve. He knows who he is. He knows what he's about. This much is clear. Jesus knows why he is here. Why is he here? To do the father's business. That's why he's here. Crystal clear. So we could summarize, I think we could summarize this message in this way. We could say something like this. Jesus is God who becomes a person to teach us or show us how to be people who live for God. That's the story. That's the arc of this story. Or I'll change a couple words to say it differently. Jesus is God who enters into our business in order to teach us or show us how to be people who are all about God's business. That's the message. That's the message. So what do you do with that? Well, maybe, maybe you came in today with questions. Uh, maybe you're carrying in your heart and your mind uh, certain levels of confusion. You're looking for clarity. You need direction. Maybe you came in with pain. Maybe you're grieving something. Maybe something. Maybe a part of your life is so difficult that it, it's like it's like a soreness. It's it's a it's a known and powerful, and you can't even ignore it. Kind of presence in your life. Maybe there are areas in your life in which you feel lost today. Well, what we do with a message like this is this: we I, I invite you to place your focus on your father's business. I invite you to, um, to make as your number one priority in light of all the challenges, the pain, the confusion, the need for clarity going on, that's not that that doesn't matter, but here's what needs to happen. Being about your father's business needs to be a number one top priority, commitment number one. And I'm telling you, as Christ does in his ministry, that when we make the number one thing the number one thing, if we focus on God and his kingdom, then all those other things that are in your heart, in your mind, in your memory, that they will find their right place. They will be ordered. Clarity will come. Healing will come. If you get them out of order, you're just fighting against the, the tie. If you follow Christ's example, he is God who teaches us how to be people who live for God. If we make, if we make the Father our number one thing, if we, if we center our whole lives around God, if that is, not, that is why I'm here to be about the business of my father, the rest will take care of itself. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's fast. It will take care. It will be ordered because you have, you have embraced the message that Jesus came to give about who you are and whose you are and what this life is actually about. Right? So uh, let's pray for a minute. And I just want to invite you, 
as I pray to imagine the things that are going on in your life right now as objects and place them under the most important, which I invite you to embrace as, as the Lord God. We thank you, Lord, for your love. And I'm so curious about all the things that must have happened in Jesus' life for the 28 years that are essentially silent, but I thank you for this one story that reveals a core truth, and I pray for the grace to embrace it. May I, as a follower of Jesus, follow Jesus, follow his example. This searching for days, this anxiety, this pain, in a sense, it's all misguided. May you be our number one. May our life be centered around you. May we be first and foremost all about our Father's business. In the name of Jesus, amen.